Today, we're back in Revelation. We're in our series, in our study of that. And, and it, I don't know if you're tracking it or not, but we're coming to the very middle. Like we're halfway through today as we close out chapter 11. We're halfway through our study in the book of Revelation uh, as we, there's 22 chapters and we're coming to the end of chapter 11. So we'll be in Revelation 11, 15 through 19. And as we do that, I just want to set some things back in our minds. I mean, this has been some heavy stuff. I know the last sermon I preached from Revelation was extremely heavy, talking about the trumpets and the judgment and despair that was leading to a desire to die, but death wasn't coming. And, and, the, and the, um, it just it was heavy. And then, and then as you guys studied the last two weeks, you're listening to these difficult symbols being laid out in front of you, but both coming as a call for, for first John, as, 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 he is, as he is seeing this mighty angel come and stand on the, on the sea and on the, on the land, as he's seeing this mighty angel, he's given a scroll and he's told, go proclaim it, go make it known. The scroll's going to be sweet, but it's also going to be bitter. There's going to be a good work that's done in you, but you're going to feel the weight of it as you enter into that work. And then the interlude of, of the trumpets turns from John and this mighty angel to two witnesses that we see God protect, but that ultimately are persecuted even as they are sent to proclaim the truth. And, and I would suggest, as Bob pointed out last week, that these, are, that these are symbolic, these two witnesses are symbolic of the church that have been sent into the world to be God's witnesses in the spirit of Moses, calling, calling God's people out of exile, in the spirit of Elijah, prophetically pronouncing judgment on a sinful, rebellious people, calling down fire from heaven, if you will. That this is the role the church has been given in this time and in this place. And this has been and continues to be our responsibility until the Lord returns and this is heavy stuff. We've seen it in, in the bowls as the, as the bowls, or not the bowls, I'm sorry, as we, we've seen it in the seals as the first four seals call out four horsemen riding, bringing conquest or conquerors and conflict and scarcity and death. We've seen it in the first four trumpets as storms and, and nature is used to reveal the wrath of God against the sinfulness of mankind. We've seen it in the reality that there are saints in, in the fifth seal. There were saints under the altar of God crying out, how long, O Lord? Lamenting, longing for justice. We've seen it in the fifth trumpet, as it's laid out in front of us, that there's going to be these locusts that bring despair, absolute despair. We've seen it in the sixth bowl, or I keep mixing these things up, the sixth seal, as, as cataclysmic events unfold. And the end of days and the end of this world as we know it comes to be. And God's judgment is prepared to fall. We've seen it in the sixth trumpet as, as death comes. As, as it's called out that, that these trumpet blasts are going to bring plagues that, that bring great trial, tribulation to the people of the world. 
And in some sense, these judgments are just that, judgments. In some sense, they are warnings. Given that if people would recognize the wrath of God and repent and seek his mercy, he would receive them, he would forgive them, and his grace would wash over them. But as we saw at the end of the sixth trumpet, they don't repent. They continue in rebellion. These are heavy things. And, and we see in the interludes of both of these things that, that separate the, the sixth and the seventh seal and the sixth and the seventh trumpet. We see in the interlude that God has a plan for his people even through these weighty circumstances, even through these heavy times. We see God has a plan for his people in these days. To be proclaimers prophetically and, 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 and honestly calling out his people from among their exile. That he's protecting us, that he sealed us against us, uh, protecting us from his wrath and preserving us from eternity. We've seen those things. We've heard the woe that's going to fall. The eagle cried out, woe, woe, woe to those who reside on the earth. These are weighty things. But even in the midst of all of this, brother, sister, Christian, even in the midst of this, as difficult as these days may be, and they may, see or may, may seem, I, I don't only want us seeing the weightiness of God's judgment. Because as his people, as his children, it is not his judgment we will endure. We have reason to celebrate. We have reason to worship instead of weep. We have reason to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and anticipate, not fear, the blast of the last trumpet. And that's where we're at. We're coming to the seventh trumpet, and what you'll see is the final judgment. The third woe that the eagle has warned us about, but it might surprise you what we see there. And so let's read, we'll pray, and then we will dig in. So Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before for God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to fathom the idea of your wrath without any reserve, without any common grace. It's hard to fathom what that will be. I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters that sit in this room and those that might listen to this recording that they don't have to fear this day. But I pray that you'd use us until this trumpet's blown, I pray that you would use us to make the truth 
of your grace known. That by our efforts, as many as you intend to be saved will be saved. I pray today as we gather around this word that your spirit would lead us, teach us, and guide us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting as we come to this, to this trumpet blast, the seventh trumpet, where the, where the uh, sixth seal was met, or the seventh seal was met with silence, the seventh trumpet is met with cheering. Victors cheer. People who win celebrate. And just think about this. It can be seen on their faces. It can be heard in their voices. I was struck by this in what I will call the, the tale of two victories um, just recently as I was in Africa and on my way back. So I'm on the plane on the way back as the Super Bowl is being played. Right? I didn't see any of it, didn't know anything about what was going on. Somewhere along the way, the pilot tells us, oh, the score's tied. This has been a great game. And I'm guessing all the football fans on the plane were like, oh, my gosh, can't believe I'm missing this game. I, it's not that big a deal to me. But there's excitement, and people start talking about it around me, and I hear the conversations we land, and, and I don't know how, I don't even remember how long it was between the time he told us that and the time we landed. I just know that as we climbed off the plane, I was walking through the airport, and there was a man standing watching a television, and you could see on his face just joy. Just, he was excited. And he turns around and he tells us, they just, won, they, just, they just scored a touchdown. And what I would find out later after climbing in the car and hearing uh, from Amy's family, that that was the, the, the game-winning touchdown. They were celebrating. In fact, we showed up at her parents' house the other night, and they're still talking about it. And her mom's like, see, Amy, you don't cut them out. They won. And they're still celebrating it. The only people not celebrating, my friends who are 49ers fans. I love you. And I don't have a dog in that fight, so it doesn't matter to me. But, oh, man, celebration, right? There is victory. People were excited. They're celebrating. What was interesting was that I had just come from Senegal. And while I was in Senegal, I found out that the Africa Cup of Nations was going on. And soccer, believe it or not, football, as they like to call it, uh, that's a bigger thing there than football is here, I think. And Senegal has a pretty good team. And they, they do really well. But they had just lost to the, Ivory, to, to the team from Ivory Coast. And so every time I'm there, I know soccer's going to come up because our driver, Sonny, is a, he is a soccer fan. He is always watching it. He's always talking about it. So I know I'm going to have a conversation about soccer. He didn't, he didn't say anything. I was like, hey. What's going on? I, I, how's Senegal doing? They had just lost to Ivory Coast. What was ironic about this meeting that I was having with these people in Senegal when we first got there was that the man that we were meeting with, one of them, one of the men we were meeting with, was from the Ivory Coast. So when he shows up, I know what I'm doing a little bit. I don't know how important to them. But I said, so uh, how's... How's Ivory Coast doing in the Africa Cup of Nations? 
Well, immediately, these men that are from Senegal, they're like, they, their heads go down. And Ko, the pastor who is from Ivory Coast, says, ah, this is probably not the time and place to talk about it. But he can't help but hide how excited he is that Ivory Coast was doing so well in the Africa Cup of Nations. It's crazy how excited we get about victory. I think that though this is a woe that's going to fall on a massive number of people, the reality is that this trumpet blast is blown and it's met with cheers and loud voices because God's people know he wins. And there's nothing that can stop it. And we'd be foolish if we'd sat in this moment and ignored the victory that God has in store for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Brother, sister, Christian, as we wait for the last trumpet to blow, I don't want us to ignore the realities that there is judgment coming. But as we wait for the last trumpet to blow, we can worship rather than weep because we know God's kingdom will come and his will will be done. And I'd love to just stop there because I don't really have, I, I, that's it, right? The trumpet's blown, and, but there's so many questions that come up with that. Wait a minute. Well, I thought his kingdom already came. Like, what are we supposed to do? Jesus said the kingdom is here. So, so we, need to, we need to go further. We need to deal with it. But please don't walk away from this reality. Don't let your question and not understanding all that God is about doing, don't let it diminish the worship that's driven from the knowledge that God wins. We do not have to weep. We can worship. We can cheer rather than cry. We can revel rather than regret. We can live with eager anticipation rather than exceeding anxiety. When the trumpet blows, God's victory will be won. His work will be completed. His promises will be consummated. We can worship as we wait because God's kingdom will come and be unending. That's exactly what this trumpet brings. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God's kingdom will come and be unending. The veil that separates heaven and earth today will be removed. His kingdom will come and his reign will never end. And again, we, we, we might wrestle. Well, wait a minute. Jesus said God's kingdom has come. In Luke, he told us that, that he said it himself, that the kingdom has come near. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, all authority is mine. Like, isn't he already reigning? Isn't his kingdom already established? What we find, though, as we step back from the Scripture, is that there is a way in which the kingdom has come, but has not yet come fully. Now, we've been talking about that in this study of Revelation. We've been talking about that in the very doctrinal, technical terms of already, but not yet. It's highly theological language. I, I know. Already, 
but not yet. I want to take it just a step further, and I want you to learn a couple of words that I think will help us define this and describe this a little bit more fully, is that as we talk about the kingdom of God and his salvation work, his, his work to bring all things to an end, there's two words, inaugurated, but not yet consummated. Inaugurated, but not yet consummated. It has started, but it has not yet been finished. And for those of you that really like the charts and graphs that I've been bringing, I brought another one. I, know. I mean, I started out this study of Revelation. I was convinced I would not use a chart or a graph. And here we go. So this one, I didn't draw this one myself. It's actually from the ESV study Bible, but it's a helpful picture. I don't know if you can see it all, but on this, on this side over here, it starts with the time of promise, and that's the Old Testament, that bottom line. And this is, this is the view of the Old Testament, the time of promise, promises are being made, and it's pointing towards the time of fulfillment. But somewhere in the middle of that, they didn't realize what was going to happen. They missed it, but Christ came. Christ put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death somewhere between the time of promise and the time of fulfillment. He comes and, and he bears the cross and he raises in victory. And when he comes, he tells them the kingdom has come. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is on you. It's with you. There's a partial realization. There's a work that has begun but it's not yet finished. The age to come, the promises that have been made, will not be fulfilled until he returns, until this last trumpet blows. And that's, that's the picture that, that we, we see all across the New Testament. In fact, I'll just share a verse with you. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so I want you to see the present reality of salvation. Born again, you're regenerate, you're, you're saved, you've got this new life. To a living hope with a future expectation. Hope is not a, it's something you experience in the present, but it's something that causes you to look to the future. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But it's not an inheritance that's yet fully yours. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wait a minute. You said I'm born again. How in the world am I born again and not already saved? You are. And you aren't. Completely clear? <laughs> okay, let's just let's think of it in these terms. Past, present, future tense of, of God's saving work. We have been saved, right? By placing our faith, trusting in him, repenting of our sins. The, the scripture is clear. We have been saved. But it also speaks in terms of present tense realities. You are being saved. And it also speaks of a future reality. You will be saved. In fact, you can see this in so many places across the scripture. I, I just, I'm just going to share some with you. Believers are already adopted in Christ. 
but not yet adopted. Romans 8.15 and Romans 8.23. I'm not going to share all the verses I have with you. Some of them you're going to have to write down yourself and go look them up on your own. But let me share these two with you. Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have received the spirit of adoption. The adoption has already occurred. Romans 8.23. Same chapter, just a few words later. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's a way in which he's already done this work. It's started. It's inaugurated. But it's not yet completely fulfilled. It's not yet consummated. Already redeemed in Christ, Ephesians 1, 7, but not yet redeemed, Ephesians 4, 30. Already sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, but not yet sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Already saved in Christ, Ephesians 2, 8, but not yet saved, Romans 5, 9. Already raised with Christ, Ephesians 2, 6, but not yet raised, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. There's a reality that God is doing a work that is bigger than your immediate experience. You are safe today because of him. And you will be safe the day that that trumpet blows because of him. And if all of salvation is wrapped up in our present experience, then salvation is not a whole lot. If we don't have a lot to look forward to, think about that. This is what eternity is? No. All of his promises are yet fulfilled. And why does this matter? Why do we need to recognize this? Why do we need to understand this? Well, one, I think there's a movement today in the church and in a lot of the people you listen to, and I'm going to try to warn you against them without just bad-mouthing them. But there is a, a movement in the church to over-realize what God has said he will do. This is earth not the new heavens and new earth. We need to recognize that though we have salvation and it is as certain as he intends it to be, there is a great joy waiting for the day that he returns and brings the new heavens and new earth with him. If we're not careful, we will get on a whole other mission because we'll try to be living in heaven when heaven has not yet come. And some of you will have been listening to people who you know who I'm talking about and I'm calling you to quit listening to them because they are over-realizing the reality that there is a work yet to be finished. But on the other end of that spectrum is a whole group of people who would act like, well, I don't need to know this. I just need to know I'm saved. It's not a big deal. But then when hardship comes, what hope do you have? When the day gets difficult, why will you not just wither away and want to ball up and die if you don't recognize that God's promise is still yet unfulfilled? And then even further on that spectrum is a whole group of people who will unintentionally live as if They've got to make something happen. We live in victory now. 
But there is victory coming. We live on the old earth that will be displaced and replaced with the new heaven and new earth and the veil will be removed and God's kingdom will come and his place will be with us and our place will be with him. That has not yet occurred. If it has, if this is heaven, if this is all he has for us, you want to live in this forever? No. It doesn't even compare to the promises that he's made us. It doesn't compare to the work that he's doing. God has inaugurated this work through his son, Jesus Christ, and God will consummate at work through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we can worship today even as the weighty things come. We don't have to be all pessimistic. Oh, man, life is so hard. Life is so terrible. Life is so difficult. Oh, man. We don't have to pretend we're victims of circumstance or victims of other people's sins or victims of, of some, something that's outside of our control. Nor do we have to ignore the fact that God is using every one of those things to sanctify us and prepare us for an eternal way to glory. Prepare us for an eternal way to glory. He has inaugurated his work, but he has not yet consummated his work. And when he consummates his work, his kingdom will come and his place will be with us and our place will be with him. Brothers and sisters, we live in victory now as we wait for the victory to be finally and fully established. So we worship him. We worship instead of weeping because God's power will be unrestrained and God's authority will be uncontested. Look at the way the elders worship. I mean, they're astonished at this trumpet. They're astonished at what God's doing. The 24 elders, we met them in the throne room vision, right? So in chapter 4, when John's called into the throne room, he sees these 24 elders around the throne and they're celebrating and worshiping God. And when this trumpet blasts, what do they do? They sing a song of praise and adoration. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, or who is and who was. And it's an interesting thought, right? So, so let's just think about this. All the way through Revelation, we've been hearing about a God who was, who is, and who is to come. Why'd they leave who is to come off? Because with the final trumpet, he comes. There's no more future. Well, there's future, but there's not future work to be done. It's consummated. You get it? We give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begin and begun to wait, 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 begun to reign. Is he not in church today? Like I thought God was sovereign. Like we talk about his sovereignty a lot at this church. We depend on his sovereignty. We celebrate the sovereignty of God over all things. What do they mean he's begun to reign? Well, the reality is, is that both his authority and his power go together. God's power will be unrestrained and God's authority will be uncontested. There's a way in which God's power right now is not used in every way we'd like him to use it. Now, let's just be honest. If we had our way, God would exercise his power to give us smooth sailing, life on easy street, right? We, if we had our way, God would put the devil down today, right? 
If we had our way, God would exercise his sovereign, almighty power to accomplish our will. Right? But that ain't happening. (laughs) Because God is sovereign. He's using his power in a way that accomplishes his will. And he's actually given dominion to an enemy that will be actually purposed for his will. But we won't, we won't fully be able to see that until the consummation comes. You think about it, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when he's dealing with the serpent, God could have, he could have finished it right then and there. The serpent could be dead. The head could be crushed. The, the work could be done. Right? But what's he doing said? He says, hey, serpent, you're going to have a place. You're going to have a, 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 an opportunity here. You're going to strike the heel of the, of the son I'm going to send. He actually gives the serpent some purpose and dominion in this world. That's why Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's why Peter writes of him as a lion walking, roaming around seeking to devour and destroy because he's actually been given some dominion. The dominion that Adam gave up is now being exercised by the enemy. And no matter how hard we try, we're not getting it back until God consummates the work he's inaugurated. Until God comes and begins to reign without any contest. When all his enemies are actually dealt with, when all the judgments have been made, when all of his power is being exercised without any restraint. Brother, sister, Christian, that for you and for me, that's reason to celebrate. But what does that mean for those who reject him, for those who don't know him, for those who continue to rebel? Well, the song goes on. The nations raged, but your wrath has come. And this is a hard one to get excited about and celebrate over because we don't want to seem discompassionate or as if we don't care because there are people we love that will suffer the wrath of God. But if we can't worship God because of his wrath against unrighteousness, we don't really understand how valuable his righteousness is. How holy he has made us and he himself is. God's wrath will be undeniable. Right now, the, Paul tells us in Romans, oh, they suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. In our sin, in, in our efforts of continuing to sin, we, we take what is main and plain and clear in the world. God's wrath is being revealed against mankind. We suppress that truth with our unrighteousness. We, we explain it away. Oh, come on, this is science. This is that, 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 that hailstorm, that, that tornado, that hurricane, that, 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 that earthquake, that failure of financial systems. We can explain it all away. We can science it away. But what we've seen as we've looked at these seals and trumpets is that these are ways in which God is judging a sinful people. And when his inaugurated work is consummated, we can worship because his wrath will finally be undeniable. 
Not because we celebrate the fact that people will experience his wrath, but because his righteousness will be unveiled for everyone. His righteousness will not be hidden. His truth will not be diminished. His work, his power, his identity will be revealed for all to see. And though they will be Though they will be receiving their punishment, even those that have raged against him will recognize that they are responsible to a holy and righteous God. Finally, we can worship as we wait because God's promises will finally be consummated. God's work will finally be finished. The work that he began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that we referenced just a moment ago when he's promising the serpent there's somebody coming to destroy you. That work will be finished. The serpent will be dealt with. The accuser will be put away and held guilty of his own sins. The promises made to, to Abraham that you're going to have a people, an offspring that's more than the stars in the sky, that's more, more than the, the grains of sand on the beach, and a land to live in eternally will be finally fulfilled. His promises to Israel, that there's an atonement coming for sin that is, that is making us able to live in relationship with him that's pictured by the ark being revealed in his temple. This isn't the nation of Israel. This is the true Israel who, who are true Israel by faith in Christ, not by lineage or birth. These promises will be fulfilled. Promises to the church that there's a day coming when every tear will be wiped away, where death will be no more, where our hope will be satisfied. We will take hold of the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We will own and hold the inheritance that's now being kept in heaven. That promise will be consummated. We will be with him. Everything God has ever promised will finally and fully be fulfilled then. We can live in the certainty of it today, but then it will be accomplished we, we, we live in his presence today. I was actually talking about this with the youth on Friday night. That we are in a way, right now, we are in his presence. He dwells in us. We are a spiritual temple. But there's a way when his final work is done, when what he has inaugurated is finally consummated, that we will walk into his presence in a way that we have never known. When we will join Job in the proclamation that in the end we will stand on the earth and with our own eyes see our Redeemer. Our faith will be sight. We will be able to stand next to Jesus, the the God who put on flesh. We will be able to walk alongside him on the beach. We will be able to climb mountains and enjoy the created order in the presence without any veil, without any diminishing, without any need for faith because our faith will have become sight. We will enjoy the created order in the very presence of our creator, not by faith, 
but by sight. We who live as citizens in his kingdom today, oh, we know we, we've got rights as his children. Right? We, or, as citizens in his kingdom, we've got rights. We've got, we, 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 can, we, we can access the king. We can call on him. We can pray to him. We can talk to him. He knows what's going on with us. We can expect him to work on our behalf. We can expect him to care for us like, like a good king does. But we will walk into a kingdom that will never, ever shake. That will never, ever end. That will be experienced again, not by faith, but by sight. We who are members of his household will step into the presence of our father and our older brother. You you know why it matters that dads are in homes? Like even when you're not, like even, even dads that are around can sometimes be absent, right? You know why it matters that a father is present in his home? Because that's how children begin to learn that there is a heavenly father who loves them, cares for them, protects them, provides for them. If they can't see it in their dad, how are they ever going to trust it from a spiritual father? But man, one day we're going to step into the presence of a father who has never failed us, who has never stumbled, who has never fallen fallen, who has never made a mistake, who has never punished instead of disciplined, who has never loved and been compassionate and tender when he should have been strict and, and strong, and who is always tender when he needed tenderness. And an older brother who loved you enough that he made it possible for you to be adopted into that family. The beauty of that, you think about this, all citizens in the kingdom, members uh, living in his presence, you know, that's special. But when you begin to think about how close he has brought us, how how near he has, has held us, there's a difference between being the citizen that's under a king and a citizen who is a son of the king. There's a radical difference, a level of intimacy, closeness, belonging, trust, security. And there's coming a day when we will know that in ways we can't even fathom today. We who are his dwelling place today, will dwell with him, not by faith, but by sight. So as we wait, brother, sister, Christian, we can worship. Because everything he has started, he will finish. And when that last trumpet blows, the victory that is certain today will be fully and finally consummated on that day. I want to close with a a portion of, of an article. It's written by a guy named Fred Zaspel. He's a pastor, a seminary professor, and author. And I think this story illustrates it very well. This idea of the already but not yet, the looking forward to a trumpet blast that's going to actually be woe for some people and celebration for others and a reason for us to worship. He writes in this article, students of World War II have often remarked that 
although VE Day was not until May 8, 1945, in a very real sense, the war in Europe was won, was over on June 6, 1944, nearly a year earlier, D-Day. In Operation Overlord, some 1,000 ships, the largest armada ever to set sail, carried some 200,000 soldiers across the English Channel to France, where they stormed the coast of Normandy. It was only the beginning of a military buildup that Germany could never have stopped. Anyone watching objectively knew it was not, it, it, it was not only a matter of time, not if, but when. The, amuse, uh, the amassing of such military personnel and material the relentless crushing of German factories from American aircraft, the ever-narrowing of Germany's supply lines, all this declared the difference between D-Day and VE Day that it was just a matter of time. And for this reason, many have said that it was on June 6, 1944, that the war was over. I suspect, however, that this rather academic assessment of things differed greatly from the perspective of the soldiers on the ground. They were still dodging bullets and all manner of military force. They were bleeding and wounded. Many were still dying, and there were still many harrowing days of the war yet to be endured, even some setbacks. It's not that our soldiers in France were unaware of the significance of Normandy. I'm, sh I'm very sure they understood it well, and this understanding doubtless gave them great encouragement. But from the day-to-day -day experience of things, this war was still very much in full swing. The dangers were many. And they were everywhere. There's something about all this that has close resemblance to Christian experience. God himself has invaded history. He, is, he came as one of us to our rescue and fought the decisive battle of the war. In his death and resurrection, Christ has obtained eternal redemption for us. Final victory has been secured. He has made full and final satisfaction for our sins. And having successfully completed the work that saves, he has triumphed over Satan. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. The works of the devil are destroyed, and Christ has forever secured his elect people for eternal life. Yes, but. But then again, it does not always seem that way. We are caught up in a real battle. Our adversary walks about like a hungry lion trying to eat us, and our constant struggles are struggles against him. He takes captive people. He, he takes people captive, and he is powerfully deceptive, masquerading even as an angel of light. Satan is alive and well, like Hitler, knowing his time was all but up, launching his great last great hurrah at the cost of so many of his soldiers. Satan seeking to do what damage he can. And we, the people of Christ, safe though we are in Christ, feel it. And there are casualties. From the perspective of the trenches, the war is still on. Sin, temptation, suffering, injustice, sickness, death, loneliness, and disappointment, failure. They are injuries and casualties of all kinds. Satan hinders us. And so does the world. And so does our flesh. And in the trenches, if we are not careful, we can lose perspective. We must never lose sight of the fact that we struggle in hope and in the certainty of a final victory. As we wait for the last trump to blow, we can worship rather than weep. We can revel rather than regret. We can eagerly anticipate rather than be filled with exceeding anxiety because we know God's kingdom will come.
and his will will be done. Let's pray.